Well, good morning. Uh, you might remember me. My name is Chris Moody. I am your pastor. It's been a while. In my uh, almost 30 years of ministry, I have not had a sick day on a Sunday morning until this last month. And for those of you that are guests, maybe watching online, uh, about, a, about three weeks ago, I came off a week vacation and, and got rewarded with COVID. Now, I had the vaccine back in the spring, and so it really wasn't uh, that uh, dire. You know, I, 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 I said to people, it's like a medium sinus infection, and it kind of sticks with you a while. Of course, playing it safe and acknowledging the danger of how contagious uh, the Delta variant is, I just stayed away. But boy, wasn't it great to have the kind of backup teachers that I was able to uh, throw in front of you. Um, they did phenomenal. Yeah, worthy of an applause. From Dustin last week to Nate and Scott. Um, man, such a, such a great church with so much talent. Our church has, from the worship stage here, as you got to be led in worship by some talented musicians, um, to those in the back of house running different systems. This is a church that's been given all the gifts we need. And uh, most of those gifts, though, are sitting in those chairs out there, and you are needed here. It's the fall. As we gear up for the fall, the, the common refrain of every church right now is get back in the game. Uh, I know COVID uh, has its warnings and its uh, necessities, but um, I'm asking you, through the book of Ruth, uh, to commit, to recommit. Uh, the text today is going to have a key word, and it's the word return, shub. It's going to be mentioned over and over again. Turn there, Ruth chapter 1. You're going to see the word return over and over again. What a great text. This is the eighth book of your Bible, if you're counting. We come out of the dark ages in the book of Ruth as you're reading your Bible from beginning to end. If you start in Genesis, you make your way through Judges. Judges is the book right before this. And Ruth is a fresh breath of air from the book of Judges. Judges is a time not unlike our own of rebellion and sin, lawlessness, two refrains in the book of Judges. It says over and over again, everyone did what was right in their own eyes, and there is no king in Israel. And that is repeated and repeated and repeated. And so you get to Ruth, and to hear the word return in the dark ages even of American history, right? You hear the word return that has new impact. Today's message is not a political message, although it is titled God's Spiritual Immigration Policy. As we think about the immigration crisis in our culture, um, there always has been in the history of Christianity such a great connection between immigration and Christianity, between adoption and Christianity. What great images, adoption, somebody coming and choosing you out of the orphanage of life, by no work of your own, you are brought into the family. Immigration, brought into the country, made a full citizen by, uh, by no work of your own. That is a, a beautiful image, and you're going to see it here in this text. That's why the book is called Ruth and not Naomi. That, that should be the question of a good Bible student as you look at this book. Why isn't this called Naomi? It seems to be mostly about her, especially in the first chapter. It's because it's not about immigration, it's about immigration. Do you know these two words? 
course, our culture, our cancel culture, and all the crazinesses of our culture have tried to butcher the English language. And there's so many butcheries here, and this one is one of them. These words are used interchangeably. One begins with an I, and one begins with an E. Immigration, I-M-M, emigration, E-1-M, two different words. One is coming into a new country. That's the I. The I is the prefix in, right? Immigration. Emigration is out of, the prefix meaning out of. So in a way, Ruth here is emigrating from Moab and immigrating to Israel. And it is, as you heard me say, I know I don't, I don't expect you to remember a month ago, but when I introduced Ruth a month ago, we talked, it, talked about it being a warm story. It's a love story. It's an immigration story. It is a beautiful story. And this is how God likes to declare his attributes. Your Bible is filled with these kind of warm stories. Very small section of didactic theology material in your Bible. Most of your Bible is these kinds of stories. What a great story. It starts out rough, though. You know, we live in a rough time. It is a bad news climate right now. Bad news, everything. Um, you hear the news this morning about Afghanistan, and they're taking over the, uh, the Taliban has taken over the, the capital, and they're flying out people from our American embassy this morning, so, or this today, so keep them in your prayers. It's a bad news climate. Hit every day. And in history, in times like this, the good news in a bad news climate shines. When it is bleak, the brightness of the gospel shines. And Ruth is the story. This chapter one isn't about Naomi. It's about Ruth and her conversion. This is a classic story for Christians to read. It is a profile of the elect, of conversion. You're meant to see yourself in Ruth. If you're watching this online, the notes are, are on our, uh, the free Bible app. You can download them through uversion.com. Click on the events tab because you're going to need to read this five-part story. You're going to need to see it. Keyword, number one, shub. You're going to see return. Here's a second keyword as I read through it. The second keyword occurs in verse 12, and it's the word hope. If you're watching this online or you're sitting in this room and you could use some hope in a somewhat hopeless, helpless culture, you're in a good place because Christ offers that. You need hope in your marriage? Christ offers that. You need hope in your parenting? Christ offers that. You need hope in your sense of mental stability? Christ offers that. You have anxiousness here today? Christ offers you hope. Hope is what you pray for because it's not really what the world can give. Right? Do you realize that? We pray for things. We are called to pray for things that are supernatural. You don't pray for things necessarily. You shouldn't pray for things that money can buy because you can go buy them. No, you pray to the God of creation, the God of recreation, the God of conversion, the God of the good news of Jesus. You pray to him for things this world cannot bring. And in verse 12, Naomi's going to give a terrible gospel presentation. She's a terrible evangelist. She says there's no hope. Now, the reason I say that's a key word is because it's the first occurrence of the word hope in your Bible. You're eight books in. You're 12 verses into the eighth book, and the word hope shows up for the first time in the Old Testament. Isn't that incredible? Now, it's the word tikva. It's not the first time, actually, the word tikva shows up. Tikva shows up in Joshua chapter 2, but it's not translated as hope. 
It's only and first translated as hope in Ruth chapter 1. Now in Joshua chapter 2, do you know the story there? Don't turn there. Let me just tell it to you. It's about another Ruth. Her name's not Ruth. Her name is Rahab. And she is a prostitute living in a dark age, the maybe not unlike the invasion of, of the capital city of Afghanistan. There is danger outside the walls. Israelites have left Egypt. They've destroyed Pharaoh's armies. The news has made it all the way into the promised land. And two, two spies come in, and these spies find this woman who's a God-fearer. And she says, I, I, we are. We are people who are scared of the God of Israel. We've heard about what he's done. And she says, like Ruth says, take me with you. Save me. Rescue me. I want to be with the people of Israel. Remember what they said? The two spies said, fine. But here's what you got to do. You got to make your commitment, your conversion public. You need to tie a red tikvah. The word in Hebrew for cord is tikvah. It's also translated in Ruth chapter 1 verse 12 as hope. Why red? Why a red tikvah? Why a red hope outside the wall? Have this red cord running down the wall. Why red? Because just a few decades ago, the Israelites were told by God to have red blood of a lamb coming down the public doorposts of their life. And the destroyer in the 10 plagues of Egypt, that 10th plague destroyer would come through the town of Egypt, the area of Egypt, and if they found the red crimson drip of blood down the door publicly, making your dedication, your commitment to Christ, to God, to the Savior public, well, that destroyer would pass over. We call that the Passover celebration. And so what they are telling Rahab, a down-and-out Gentile woman, a poor Gentile woman, just like Ruth, if you want to be a part of Israel, you need to go public with your commitment in the Savior. And, and that, for you, is the same story. So as we look at it, I ask you to see yourself in five tikvahs, five crimson cords that I see throughout the whole Bible that are highlighted here. We're going to do a great cross-reference to the book of Romans chapter 5, but as we read it, this is your story. This is my story. It starts out bad. In five verses, you see immigration, right? You see Naomi and Elimelech leave Israel. They live in the house of bread. That's what Bethlehem means. They are in Bethlehem, and in verses 1 through 5, it says there is no bread in the house of bread. There is a famine in the land, and they should have stayed put they're never told to leave the land. They, 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 ha they didn't have a full belly, and so they ran from the covenant, which is ironic. Elimelech means God, God is my king, and this man ought to know better. Naomi ought to know better. And in the irony of it, God is not their king. And they go to the enemy. They go to Moab, this place of great paganism and evil. And they do the next worst thing. On top of that, they marry their two sons off to foreign women with foreign gods. Shemosh is the god of the Moabites, and he called for human sacrifice. He called for gross sexual immorality and celebration of all that. And they marry their two sons. Now, their two sons have a little play on words. Remember what their names were? Malon and Chilion, puny and pining, right? They birthed two kids named oppressed and more oppressed. 
puny and pining, and that is the fruit of living outside of God. Living outside of God um, doesn't go well. And as, as such, they marry these two boys off, and by the end of verse 5, the dad is dead, the two boys are dead, and you have three widows, three graves and three widows. Now we pick up the story in verse 6. Look at verse 6. <clears throat> then she, Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law that she might, Shub, you're going to see Shub return, mentioned six times, from the land of Moab, for she had heard, catch the irony here, by verse 6, she had heard, 10 years have passed from verse 1 to verse 6, 10 years later, she had heard in the land of Moab where she was that the Lord had visited his people in giving them, and the Hebrew is lechem, Bethlehem, bread. Lechem is bread. There's bread again in the land. And so she's ready to go back. As you read this verse, you can almost feel the hope. You can almost feel uh, the perhaps. Maybe we can go back there and, yeah, I've been gone for 10 years, but maybe I can go back there. See, I see this as the crimson cord of grace. The first cord is grace. Maybe I've been running from God. I've been out of the land. I've been out of his relationship, but maybe he'll take me. Maybe I can return. You're meant with this first cord of grace to see the prodigal story of the prodigal son. You know the story. He's, he's eating pig food. Jews weren't to be touching pigs, around pigs, much less eating what the pigs ate. And he comes to his senses, like verse 6, and says, maybe there's lechem in my father's house. I've been wasting away over here. Maybe I could take a chance there. Grace is freely bestowed upon someone who does not deserve it, but sees that God is good. At the heart of this universe, as crazy and as broken as the country is, much less the universe, there is a heart of grace in the center of this universe. Naomi is an insider, and she says, I can go there and find bread. I, what's missing in Naomi is confession of sin. You don't see that. She doesn't confess sin anywhere in here. She cares more about the land and the loaves than the Lord. She's not talking about God here. It's all about the food. That's, that's a bad motivation. But, but the consistent plea of the prophets of the Old Testament is turn from your sin and turn not to the land and to the perks, and to the prosperity, but turn to the Lord, the one who made you, the one who can remake you and, recon and can convert you, the one who will be with you in the middle of it all. No, 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 Ruth is the outsider. This is a story about Ruth's conversion as evidence. Hear me. Some of you desperately need to hear this. Ruth is evidence of the sovereign grace of God to people who don't deserve it. He will show up in, in, in a mighty way, in a gracious way. That's what we see here. Everything is against Ruth, but God. God's not against her. God is for her. Everything is against her. Her background is against her. She is a worshiper of a false god, Shemash, who calls for human sacrifice and sexual immorality. Her, her circumstances are against her. She has every reason to be bitter against this God of Israel. She looks at Naomi and Elimelech, and there are three dead men, and there's a famine in the land 10 years ago. Why would I want to follow that God that didn't seem to do Naomi any good? 
So she has every reason to be bitter. Her circumstances are against her. Her background's against her. And Naomi is against her. You're going to see Naomi a number of times say, go home, Ruth. I don't want you with me. I don't want you with me. She never says, Ruth, I want you with me. Man, everything is against her, but God is for her. That's all you need. Amen? A great cross-reference, I said, was Romans 5. Romans 5, 1 through 5. We'll, we'll connect them. It's a perfect match to Ruth chapter 1, Romans 5. A lot of tears in my life have been shed from Romans 5. It's on the screen. You don't have to turn there, but look at Romans 5, 1. Therefore, you know, four chapters of Romans talking about the bad news. You get five verses in Ruth. You get five, four chapters in the book of Romans, especially chapters 1 through 3. But in chapter 5, we read this, therefore, having been justified by faith. You know what faith is? Faith is what you do when there's nothing left to do. It's already been done for you. Justified means to be declared not guilty, to be declared in, not out. Having been, and, and this is what makes Christianity so unique, right? This is what makes Christianity so powerful. No other religion in the world says salvation, justification, being declared right before God is something in the past that can be a done deal. Jesus yells it from the cross, done. Having been justified by faith, we have, past tense, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, Ruth had been hearing her God say, and all false religions pretty much say, you bleed for your God and he will accept you. You bleed for me. You, you give me your kids you give me your time, you bleed, and I'll accept you. But Christianity, the God of the Bible says, our God bled for us and declared us accepted. Do you hear me? Other religions say, you bleed for your God and I will accept you. God of the Bible says, he bled for you and declared you are accepted. By no work of your own. We have peace with God through, not you, our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained our crimson cord, our crimson cord of grace, our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. Like Rahab and Ruth, we've stuck this cord. God stuck this crimson cord out of our lives. We're called to do it publicly. We're called to be public followers of Christ, this one who has introduced us into this grace. And not only that, we praise him for it. We sing songs. We exalt we praise in the hope of the glory of God. Not my glory, his glory in me. Whew, that's good. Go back to Ruth, verse 7. So she departed. Catch the scene. They leave together. She departed from the place where she was and her two daughter-in-laws. By the way, that's incidentally your relationship to Israel. You are a daughter-in-law. Very few. Somebody, somebody a couple people told me last week, time I preached this. I, I, I have Jewish background. I got, I got I'm 25, 50%, 75% Jewish. Some people told me that. So there might be a few that have Jewish blood in this room, but I see Moabite Ruths. I see Ruths. I see Moabites. And your relationship to Israel is you are a daughter-in-law. You are married in through your husband, Jesus Christ. Amen? They were with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. So don't miss that. They're all going together. They're packed. I don't know what they were driving, riding, camels, carts. I don't know, but they're all going. And then Naomi has a second thought. She has a regret. Naomi said to her two daughter-in-laws, did it take a day? 
Did it take an hour? Did it take a week? I don't know. It's a long, it's not that long of a trip from Moab, but they got to go across the, the Jordan River. But maybe it took a few hours, and she said, I, this isn't good. Go, return each of you, now, notice the wording, to her mother's house. Number one, she's a terrible evangelist, right? Salvation is of uh, the Jews. It's of the God of the Bible. And, and she's saying, go home. Like, bye. But also, I think here, maybe the daughters, these daughter-in-laws have been talking to their mamas. And maybe she knew that they had talked about, and this is the story. The story of Ruth is a story of husband and wives. And maybe they had talked to their real mom about getting them Moabite men, right? Regardless, see the prayer. She prays for them, verse 8. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with me. The basis of her blessing, this prayer, is the gracious action of Ruth and Orpah. These two have been good daughter-in-laws, right? But they are told to go. Here's a great illustration of grace. I got to turn there with you. I want you to see this. This is a phenomenal illustration. Later in the history of Israel, in the time of the kings, go to 2 Kings, is a story that looks like Ruth chapter 1 to me. It's chapter 7 of 2 Kings. Turn there. Give you a second. We'll start in verse 3. Instead of a Rahab harlot living in Jericho or a Ruth Moabite poor widow woman living in Moab, you have chapter 7 of 2 Kings verse 3, you have four lepers. It's in the ministry of Elisha. Elijah has fought the battle at Mount Carmel. He's gone. He's done his job. Elisha asked for double blessing of the kind of ministry and he does twice the number of miracles of Elijah. And Elisha here, you have this little story, a little jewel. I think Ruth is a pearl of righteousness. Here you have four pearls in the, in the housing of leprosy. Leprosy in Jewish life was an illustration of sin. What was on the inside was on the outside. It was uh, the disease of AIDS of our modern era. That would be this kind of, of uh, illness, right? It just, it was tore you up. And it wasn't their fault, or that's not what I'm saying, but it was an illustration that they used to see what sin was like. Uh, they didn't get leprosy for something necessarily they did, but look at what they do in light of their leprosy. No, now, where, there were four leprous men at the entrance of the gate, and they said to one another, why do we sit here until we die? There's a famine. If we say we will enter the city, the famine is in the city. This isn't Bethlehem, but still, there's a famine in the land. If we say, if we enter the city, then the famine is in the city and we're going to die. So option one, we're outside the city, we can go in the city, we can retreat, be safer, but we're going to die. And here, if we sit here, outside the city, we die also. So option one, retreat. Option two, remain, just stay put. Now, therefore, come and let us go over to the camp of the enemy, the Arameans, who are sacking the city. If they spare us, do you see third option? Retreat, remain, risk. If we go to the enemy and they spare us, they might feed us. 
If they spare us, we live because we get some food. If they kill us, well, we die. So option one, we die. Option two, we die. Option three, maybe we don't die. Three choices. The greatest source of hope is in option three. If you're here watching this online, sitting in here, and you're thinking about your your journey, and you're wondering, should I go forward in my faith? Maybe I need to go back to that bad relationship, that bad attitude, that bad job, or whatever you're going back to. That's not a good option. Staying put, that's the definition of insanity. Doing the same thing, the same way, expecting different results. Remaining isn't an option. I'm asking you to take a chance with Jesus, going forward with him. Look at the little divine parentheses in verse 6, a little parenthetical divine explanation. Here's what was happening. Verse 5, they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Arameans, and when they came to the outskirts of the camp of the Arameans, behold, there was no one there. So they take a risk, and there's no one there, and God says... Here's this parenthesis. For the Lord had caused the army, the Arameans, to hear a sound of chariots, a supernatural sound, and a sound supernaturally of horses, even the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired us against the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians. They've come upon us. Therefore they arose and they fled in the twilight and left their tents and their horses and their donkeys, even the camp as it was, and they fled for their lives." You know, we live in a dark time. They lived in a dark time. Ruth lives in a dark time. It's a, it's a culture of bad news. But I want you to hear in that little parenthesis, the mind of man is in the hand of God. He makes sport here of their imaginations. He, he is able to do that. So, no, no, no. What we see in our culture is not sovereign. God is sovereign. Amen? And he... The mind of man is in the hand of God. Verse 8, when the lepers came to the outskirts of the camp. Picture the scene. No one's there. They walk into the camp. They're looking around. They're hungry. They entered one tent, and they ate, and they drank. Food and drink. They carried from there some silver and gold and clothes, and they went and hid them. Oh, that's not good. Maybe you'd have done the same thing. Hoard it. And they returned. Here's the word shub. They went back, and they entered another tent, and they carried, they did it again from there also, and they went and hid them. Compare that to the joy of the soul of a new believer first discovering the unsearchable glory and joy and food and drink of Jesus. Ephesians 3.8, when you're brought alive in Christ, the unsearchable riches of Christ, man, you don't hoard it, you don't hide it. And they shouldn't either. Verse 9, they said to one another, they, they, they self-rebuke here, we are not doing right. This day is a day of good news, and we are keeping it silent. If we wait until morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, let us go and tell the king's household. Oh, love that. You can't help but reflect on the humble and unlikely instruments that God uses, the Rahabs, the Ruth, the lepers. But you also can't help but see that it's not, it, you can't hide it. You, that's not the goal. Your commitment is to be public. You're to tie the red cord of grace on your life. If Jesus can save me, he can save you. If he can rescue me out of alcoholism, he can rescue you out of alcoholism. If he can rescue me out of lust and sexuality, he can rescue you out of that. If he can rescue me out of anxiety, he can rescue you. I'm an unlikely tool, and so see the red cord. Amen? 
See the tikva, the hope that I, a walking commercial, can give you. And buy that commodity. Don't buy what the world's selling. Go back to Ruth. So that's verse 6. Wow, we didn't get very far. You know, I haven't preached in a month, and so today's sermon will be about an hour and a half. Just joking. Try not to. But anyway, verse 7, she departed. They returned. Verse 8, the prayer. Look at another prayer, verse 9. May the Lord grant you that you may find rest in the house of her husband. So go back, take a husband. You see, this is a theme in this book, the security of marriage, right? Who you're married to. If you're married to Jesus, you're secure, right? Here it's about a spiritual journey into relationship with Christ. Your husband, your wife physically will will surprise you in great ways and discourage you in others. That's the way we work among humans. But God will never let you down. Notice verse 9. Then she kissed them. Now you're going to see this a couple of times. There's a lot of kisses in Scripture. Here, the Hebrew idiom is kissed them goodbye. And they lifted up their voices. They knew what the kiss meant. They lifted up their voices and they wept. Verse 10, and they said to one another, or to her, No, we shall surely return with you to your people. Do you catch the message of Naomi? Naomi is saying, um, I am going, you have no hope, right? We see that in verse 12, of finding a husband among the Israelites because they don't marry foreign women. You need to go back. I can offer you no perks, right? Matter of fact, I'm under judgment. I think she believes and knows that she's under judgment. She doesn't understand it all. She thinks like Job that God is retributive. It's retribution theology. God has given even with me. No, no, he disciplines his children. It's discipline, not retribution. She doesn't get it. Job takes 30-some-odd chapters to get that God's not trying to get, you know, even with Job, like God needs to get even with us. No, no, God is a good God, and he has children, and he, he ministers to them, sometimes through punishment, right? But regardless, she, I think, here's, here's what I think. I think her message is she doesn't want to see her sin in Moab brought with her. She wants a clean slate. I think she wants to cover up. The Bible says, turn from your sin and return to the Lord. And she isn't talking about the Lord at all. She's all about the land. So that's her message, cover up. The message of Jesus Christ, 1 John 1, 9. If you confess your sin, God is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to purify you from all unrighteousness. That's the message of the Bible Naomi doesn't get it. Verse 11, Naomi said it again. Return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Notice her arguments. Have I, have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? So two times so far, she said, go back home. Terrible evangelist. Here her argument is, I'm an old woman. I'm, I've gone through menopause. There's no babies coming from this womb. You know, I love in the Bible empty wombs and full tombs are perfect places where God shows up and shows off. An empty womb of Sarah, an empty womb of Naomi. Now, Naomi isn't going to give birth to a child, but you can see the impossibility. Maybe you feel that here. It is impossible. My, my, my health is just getting worse. My marriage is just getting worse. My insanity is just getting worse. My anxiety is just getting worse. My depression is just getting worse. But you plus God provides all the supernatural power you need for it to get better. The question is, what does better mean? That's going to be the next question for Naomi and Ruth. You'll see. But notice her argument. I can't birth you a child. Return my daughters. There's the third time. 
Verse 12, go for I am too old to have a husband. My womb is a tomb. If I said I have, there's the word. Underline it, star it. Ladies, get out your lipstick if you don't have a highlighter and circle it. Guys, dog ear that. First time in the Bible, the word hope is translated tikva, cord. If I have a cord, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Do you see what she said? Even if God supernaturally touched my womb, are you going to wait 20 years to marry another one of my sons? Time is against you. No, my daughters, for it is, this is insensitive. What does it say? It is harder for me than for you. (laughs) If you're in ministry here and you're a leader and you're leading one of our small groups and you got people you're discipling and they go through hard things, don't say that to them. (laughs) I I had it harder than you got it, right? That's, That's not good ministry. It's a bit insensitive. She thought she, her case was more bitter than theirs because they had the potential to have babies. For the hand, though, of the Lord has gone against me. Here's what, here's what she's doing, and I hope you see it. She's saying, Ruth, Orpah, I can offer you no perks. All I can offer you is absolutely more suffering. It's going to be a hard road. You're going to go back there. If you come with me, it's going to be hard. If you go back, I don't know. But if you go with me, I know it's going to be hard. Here's the second crimson cord. It's the crimson cord of tribulation. This is the gospel presentation, really, of the New Testament. Jesus dismissed crowds like this. A a man comes to Christ and says, I will follow you anywhere. Now, if one of you said that to us today, we'd have the tendency to go, man, we're going to sign you up. Good, awesome. Let's get you in a Bible study. Let's get you discipled. Jesus doesn't say that. I have more information in my New Testament of Jesus dismissing crowds than him receiving crowds. What did he say to the man who said, I'll follow you anywhere? What a great commitment. What does he say? Foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. In other words, I can offer you no place to feel safe and secure outside of myself. Jesus says, I'm all you need, I'm all you're going to get, and if you think you're coming into a relationship with me because it'll do you good, and I might give you, Ruth, a husband, I can offer you nothing. That's the message that Christ brings to every Christian. It's a cord of tribulation. Now, Romans 5, 5, 1 and 2, we already read. 5, 3 says the same thing. Listen to it. And not only this, remember what it said in verses 1 and 2? Great cross-reference. You've been introduced into this grace. You stand into this grace. It's peace. It's awesome. But here's what you get. In addition to grace and peace and hope, you get tribulations. Isn't that a weird word, though? We exult in our tribulations. That's what a Christian does. We can turn lemons into lemonade. We can turn, we can turn pollen into honey. We can go through hard stuff, and we know God is working through it. And mature believers understand that. If you're a young believer, maybe you haven't lived through a lot of tribulation, but tribulation is the crucible. It's the curriculum of spiritual greatness. It's the thing that grinds you down and pulls out something that is a beautiful aroma. It's the aroma of life. I have grown to be who I am 
through the hard things I've gone through, not through the great, easy, prosperous things. See, I know God's sovereign over my tribulations. Ruth, you need to hear that, right? Ruth, the New Testament offers no perks. It offers you death, persecution, alienation from the world. Naomi says, go home. Verse 14, Orpah and Ruth now give their response. What's your response to this? Court of grace, court of tribulation. Paul will tell a young pastor named Timothy, all his godly ones will suffer. But it's so worth it. And so you can praise God because you know what's coming. Verse 14, they lifted up their voices and they wept again. Orpah, remember what kissing meant? So read verse 14. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. What does that mean? Goodbye. Right? But two people. Ruth clung to her. What's your choice? Orpah, you never see her again. She disappears into the obscurity of heathen history. She's gone. We don't talk about her. Even the one celebrity that's named after her, they spell the name wrong. The message of Naomi is cover up. The message of Ruth is give up. She hears all this talk about suffering and tribulation and self-death and no perks. And she, you know what the name Orpah means? This is rich. The name Orpah is the name of a body part. It's the back of the neck. It's Hebrew idiom for turning your back on somebody. Now, who would name a child back of my neck? Who would name a child later, Avidarzain, Sayonara, Goodbye, Bio con Dios, right? Who would name a child by, back of my neck, I'm out of here? I don't know, but it's a little play on words. It says, Orpa, Orpad. But Ruth, we don't see Orpa ever again. But Ruth, Ruth clung. You know what the name Ruth means? If you're taking a note, it means best friend. BFF, right? BFF. The root of it is compassion. I love you. You're mine. God's kind of compassion. What you, your pain, you know, here's what compassion, here's the definition of the root word. Your pain in my heart. I love you. What you go through, I go through. That's, that's Ruth. You're my best friend. And do we see Ruth in the rest of the Bible? Oh, yeah. Where does Ruth show up in the New Testament? In the lineage of Jesus the Christ. She is immortalized because of this choice in the heritage. This is an heiress to Jesus. Wow. No, this, this represents two types of people, two types of Gentiles. Orpah represents Gentiles who hear the claims of Christ and they say, nope, not for me. And they orpod. They turn their backs. And they do something else. Ruth represents Gentiles who hear Luke 9, 23 and 24, if anyone wants to follow me, you must die to self, take up your cross daily and follow me. If you wish to save your life and preserve your life and live for you, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life, and here's the key of verse 24 of Luke 9, lose your life for my sake and live for my kingdom, you find real life. And they say, amen, I'm in. And they cling, they cling. I love this. They cling. You know, the Greek term, this is Hebrew, but in the Greek, there's a word for clinging. And it's used in Acts, where John and, and Peter 
uh, heal somebody. You remember the story, silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise and walk, be healed. Remember that story? And the man is healed and he starts jumping and leaping and singing and he won't leave him alone. They go to the temple and it says in the book of Acts that this man was clinging to him. Peter will say to G- well, Jesus will say to Peter, will you leave me also? And Peter will say to Jesus, where have I to go but with you? Who else has the words of eternal life? No, I'm with you, Jesus. And of course, he does have a denial time and a restoration time, but it's a beautiful story. This is the cord of perseverance. The cord of perseverance. Here's the third cord. Clinging is surprising coming from her. Orpah, Orpad, Ruth grabs her, and that's surprising. Both have a high opinion of Naomi. Both have a high opinion of the people of Israel, but it's Ruth that clings. Chapter 5 of Romans, verse 3 on the screen. And not only this, we praise God in our tribulations because we know that tribulation brings about the cord, the hope of perseverance. I have, here's my word, I have greater stick to itness. I have a PhD, I can make up words. I have stick to itness because of what I see Jesus doing in my life through suffering. And that gives me more hope and more hope and more hope. The word in Greek for perseverance is hupomone. Hupo means under. Mone means stay put. Hope means cling. We can cling underneath hardship because we know that Jesus is worth it. Ooh, that's good. Verse 15. Ruth 1, 15. And they said, behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to your people and her God's return. Go after your sister-in-law. Decision time, Ruth. What you going to do? Ruth said, now verse 16. If you haven't studied your Bible, or maybe you have, and you haven't studied this section of Scripture, you're watching this online, this verse and the next verse. In all of human literature, there is not a greater example of human commitment than this right here. So much so that it's used in weddings. So much so that it is written on banners and in doors, on doors. It's written on on paintings. It is the greatest example of human devotion in all of human literature. Now, can I say that strong? Yeah. It's covenant language. Verse 15, 16, Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. Now that is Christian commitment. That is the definition of devotion. It's chronological and it's geological and it's geographical in its sequence. It is the crimson cord, number four, of allegiance. And if somebody didn't tell you that's what you sign up for as you follow Christ, you follow Christ to cling And leaving is offensive to you. Leaving is offensive for her. Look at the next verse. Where you die, I will die. There I will be buried. Cue the tears. I'll leave my country. I'll be faithful to your country, your people, your God, till death do me part. Thus may the Lord, she adds a curse. Thus may the Lord do to me and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. <laughs> this is the statement of Christians. We are devoted to Jesus like this. This is the cord of our allegiance. 
Our allegiance isn't first to America or politics or even to our blood family. Our allegiance is first to Jesus. That's what a Christian is. We are best friends with God. Leaving, not abiding, is offensive to us. We don't take stock in what people claim. We Christians take stock in where people cling. Non-Christians can kiss Naomi goodbye. They can kiss Israel goodbye. They can kiss the Bible goodbye. They can take it or leave it. We Christians can't take it or leave it. It is ours, and we grab it, and we hold on to it, and we white-knuckle it. It's not an option. It's offensive to not follow. Romans chapter 5, verse 4. We've had grace. We've had the cord of grace. We've had the, the cord of tribulation. We've had the cord, you know, related to perseverance. And now we have a court of allegiance. Listen to this. Verse 4. Perseverance creates something. In Greek, it's just the word proof. Proven character. You, you prove your allegiance. Proof. And proven character produces more hope. Some of you, as I've watched you as your pastor, you know, next year is our 150th year as a church. Next year will be my 15th year pastoring this church. I will have pastored this church for 10% of its life. And my favorite stories are those of you that have gone through hard times and have found hope in Christ and it proved who you are in the crucible of your allegiance. You know you belong to him. And I want that for the rest of you. Now, to get to the proof for the rest of you, you've got to have the pain. Finish the statement. No pain, no gain. And that's what Naomi and Ruth are dealing with. Look at the last two verses. I already read verse 17. Look at the last verse. When she saw that, Naomi, that Ruth was determined to go with her, Naomi said no more to her. She acquiesced. She stopped urging. When she saw what she saw, see, I told you, verses 16 and 17 is covenant language. Verses 16 and 17 is used in weddings. It's language of covenant. You know what covenant loyalty is called in the Bible? It's called love. The word hesed is in this first chapter. That's loyal love. The word agape in the New Testament, loyal love. It's covenant love. This is the language of lovers. And that's your last chord. It's the chord of love. And it's a chord of loyal love. It's committed love. Not this flaky, funny love. Not the love that you can use for such things as, I love my pornography. I love my car. I love my drugs. I love my puppy. Not that kind of loosey-goosey love, but the kind of love, and if I'm Satan, and I want to destroy this kind of definition of love, I'm going to destroy marriage, and I'm going to destroy weddings, and I'm going to destroy family, because then there's no walking commercials of this kind of love, where you would stand up and give this kind of illustration of what your relationship with God is like. My relationship with God is like my marriage to my wife, Wendy. One pales in comparison to the other. I told my wife on the day that we married something that for you, those of you that are not Christ followers might sound weird. I said, I love God more than I love you. But because I love him more, I love you more. Because I'm attached into a type of source, a sourcing of love that creates more opportunity. No, the crimson cord of love. Now, see their respective options. Can you stand with me? And I want you to make a choice. Naomi says cover up. Orpah says give up. Ruth says stand up. Make your commitments known. Tie the red cord of these kind of hopes on the public doors of your life. That we stand for these things. We stand 
insecurity and commitment to grace, tribulation, perseverance, allegiance, love. These are the things that are the cords of our hope. And if you don't stand for it, how can God use you in your neighborhoods where you're going to go later today? you got to stand for it here to be even have a chance, a hope of standing for it there. And maybe today you're watching this online, you're here, and you see Jesus did it all, paid it all, died the death, lived the life, offers the free gift of salvation, offers me an immigration into a new country called a heavenly city, and I say, yes, I go with you, and I want spiritual immigration. If that's the cord of your life, you have true hope. Yes, there's risk. Like the lepers, you can't retreat, you can't remain, you've got to risk it and give your life to Christ. Because there is no other hope. These are the only kinds of hopes that get you through hard times. You've heard it, the story, probably. Lonely frog goes to a fortune teller. He's told about his life not to worry. The fortune teller says, you're going to meet a beautiful young girl, and she will want to know everything about you. That's great, the excited frog says. When will I meet her? And the psychic says, next semester in biology class. If you're hearing this online or you're here in this room and you think you can come to Jesus because he'll be your prince in shining armor and he'll turn you a frog into a prince or a princess, that's not why we repent. That's not why we shub. That's not why we come. We don't come because it'll do us good. We come because he's the only lover of our soul. We come because his kingdom is the only true kingdom. We come because there is no other hope that I have. And if he needs to dissect me so my neighbors can see what's in me through tribulation, bring it. I praise God. I don't, I don't beg for that kind of suffering, but I know it's part of the curriculum. So take me to the biology class and cut me open and let people see what's in me. Amen? Do y'all see how huge this is? Let me pray over you. Father, I pray that they see how huge it is. We wonder sometimes, what's the point in all the pain? We seem to be victims of random fate. Is there any point to the unfolding events in our lives? But the book of Ruth addresses that question, that prayer. And what it tells us is that there is a heart, a loving heart at the center of the universe. It's not just a cold, empty expanse, indifferent to us, to our lives. It's not a machine driven by some cruel, malevolent force such as chance. No. Behind everything, this is what the book of Ruth tells us, behind everything is a gracious providence that is purposeful and loving and right. And we cling to it because there is no other hope. There is no other hope. I pray you'd receive new Ruths into the immigration of your country, Jesus. Receive new people into your country and receive them as full citizens. And may the joy of the unsearchable riches of Christ create such a leaping, joyful clinging that they'll never be the same. And then dissect them in front of their neighbors and they can, others can say, what got into you? And they can say, Jesus got into me and he's mine. And I love him. And there is no other husband. There is no other hope. May that be the testimony of the Ruth Moabites known as Christians. In Jesus' name, amen. That's church. That's Christianity. And I pray that this week you cling and that people can see you. In Jesus' name, go be the church.